0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, I'm Laura Garcia. I teach philosophy at Boston College in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, and I'm presenting a series of lessons on analytic philosophy, a 20th century philosophy especially as practiced in Great Britain and in America and the US. Analytic philosophy refers primarily to a movement in philosophy or or maybe a series of movements that began early in the 20th century under the influence of philosophers like uh, Frege, Bertrand Russell, and G.E. Moore. Uh, Russell and Moore were classmates at Cambridge University As the term analysis suggests, these philosophers gave careful attention to the meaning of terms in our language as a way of clearing the ground for genuine progress on the traditional problems of philosophy. Careful attention to meaning, of course, was hardly a new idea in philosophy. In the early dialogues of Plato, for instance, we find Socrates pressing other people to give a precise definition of the concepts they're talking about in order to clear things up and to make sure we don't get off on the wrong track. The goal of that kind of careful definition, taken negatively anyway, would be to avoid the errors that might arise from faulty or overly vague definitions of terms. But the positive goal is to find the truth, since hitting on the right definition can itself reveal the truth sometimes, or even when not, it can at least point us in the right direction in our search for the truth, deflecting us from wrong turns. To take one example, Socrates meets Euthyphro, in Plato's dialogue by that same name, and ask Euthyphro's help in understanding the true meaning of piety. A number of their initial efforts end in failure, and in fact the conversation is interrupted abruptly and the dialogue ends inconclusively. But we do gain some insight into the nature of morality, the relationship between morality and the divine will, and some hints of Socrates or maybe Plato's view of what piety is. In some of the later dialogues, especially Theaetetus, there's a a similar effort to find the exact meaning of terms. For instance, what it is to know something. And uh, in Theaetetus the conclusion is that knowledge is true belief accompanied by an account or justification. This definition has had a long philosophical career. So what I would like to do in this series of lessons is to give a brief, really historical, more or less chronological analysis or account of developments in British and American philosophy, starting with G.E. Moore and moving through the present day, focusing primarily on, you might say, the heyday or the summit of analytic philosophy and the um, days of logical positivism and the Vienna Circle. But uh, since that has been more or less transcended in later years, I would like to spend some time talking about what's happened since then, since the 60s. The 20th century variety of analysis does have some differences, I think, with the earlier versions that I've talked about in Plato and Aristotle. Two especially things I think are distinctive of contemporary analytic philosophy. The first is that philosophy is now viewed as the handmaiden of science, as taking science as the kind of model of learning, instead of as maybe the handmaiden of theology as it was in the medieval period. This philosophy is now atheism in philosophy is the default position and Science has been making great strides when we hit the 20th century, making new technologies possible. There was a sense even of utopian possibilities and visions. And at the turn of the century, prior to the Great War anyway, philosophy just found it hard to compete with science in offering a comprehensive vision of life and reality, making people's lives better. There, the sciences were the hot item. At the same time, philosophy, as it was being practiced in Britain, had veered away from this kind of empiricist roots in philosophers like Hume and had become increasingly airy. Hegel's grand idealistic system captured the best philosophical minds at Oxford and Cambridge, but it was itself obscure in many respects and made many deeply counterintuitive claims. Analysis then became in part a program of showing that the emperor, in this case Hegel, has no clothes. The second thing that I think is distinctive about contemporary analytic philosophy is it sees many times, sees the task of philosophy to be one of dissolving long-standing philosophical problems. That is rather than the attempt to find the truth or to build a comprehensive theory or system, there's the sense that maybe just by the project of analysis itself we could make the problems evaporate. We will see that they're pseudo-problems or that they're based on some kind of misconception that's been produced in us by the way we use our language. This had long been a goal, I think, of some modern philosophers, including Rene Descartes and David Hume. Hume was especially enthusiastic about what we might call the purgative project in philosophy, as he wanted to eliminate concepts that he took to be without merit as not sufficiently grounded in experience And for Hume, experience meant sense impressions, the the things that are immediately present to the mind. And I think the wind beneath the wings of that project is often a quest for certainty, ardent desire not to be deceived by the use of unexamined terms or concepts. In addition, though, to the purgative project, some philosophers want to advance a more positive, constructive project in philosophy, designed to come closer to the truth about things by a way of clear understanding about the way we think about them and talk about them. I think the constructive project has its roots in ancient Greece, as I've suggested, in Plato and Aristotle, also in um, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, and surfaces in the modern period as well, I think under the auspices of Thomas Reed's philosophy of common sense. Reed was a contemporary of Hume, very critical of Hume's philosophy, and he opens his essays on the intellectual powers of man with this bold assertion. There is no greater impediment to the advancement of knowledge than the ambiguity of words. So the implication there is if we clear away the ambiguities, knowledge will advance, skepticism will be seen to be what it is, a mere sham, and so forth. That was Reed's hope. Now, when we get to 20th century analytic philosophy, we find, I think, both these projects, both the purgative and the constructive project, still at work. However, this constructive project took a new twist, thanks to advances in logic. New developments in formal logic caused great excitement among some philosophers, as they seem more suited for capturing new developments in the sciences, especially in the science of relativity theory. Perhaps the new logic would provide a language that would mirror the empirical world in a more clear and more rational way, or that was the hope anyway. Bertrand Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein were at the vanguard of this project which came to be known as logical atomism. The idea was to find the irreducible atoms of language as purified and perfected through the use of the new logic, map them onto the irreducible atoms of experience. And for a time the attempt to construct such an ideal language or perfected language took center stage in the English speaking philosophy. A world of philosophy, His purpose was to develop a language adequate for the natural sciences. The idea was ordinary, everyday language has so many different uses, is open to so many interpretations, has vague and confusing expressions, and the hope was that by introducing a kind of simpler, purer, structurally clear language, one could continue to make progress in the sciences and to show the ways, the foundations of science, quite literally, almost pictorially. This constructive project had held the added promise of aiding the purgative project, showing that many so-called philosophical or metaphysical problems sprang from the sloppy use of language we learned at our mother's knee, or for the Sesame Street generation, the language we learned at Big Bird's knee. So this purified language project, which fascinated philosophers, especially in Britain, for many years, ultimately encountered so many obstacles that it could not Continue. It cannot carry on. But many aspects of its animating spirit remained to fuel the extreme version of empiricism proposed by a group of thinkers who first came together in Vienna, Austria in the 1920s. They gathered around the philosopher Mort Schlick, who was newly appointed uh, philosopher of science at the university, but most of the members of the group were not philosophers. Many of them were natural scientists, economists, social scientists, mathematicians, and they called themselves at first the Vienna Circle. Later in the 30s, with the rise of fascism in Europe, many of them moved either to Britain or to the United States. And so then the movement became known more generally as logical positivism. The positivist movement had radically restrictive requirements on which claims are even meaningful. And their criterion of meaning had enormous influence in philosophy in English-speaking philosophy, especially Britain and the U.S. It just dominated uh, American philosophy until about the late 1950s when it finally succumbed under sustained attack from within, internal problems as well as from without, various criticisms. It would be kind of encouraging to think that these attacks came from philosophers who wanted to defend the meaningfulness of moral language or religious language. But as a matter of fact, the real criticisms, I think, that brought the end of logical positive had a lot more to do with its inadequacy in dealing with the language used by natural science itself. The language of scientific theories, it couldn't adequately capture even scientific language, much less wider variety of ways of speaking about things or kinds of knowing or kinds of claims people have wanted to make and defend. And so it eventually collapsed. Now at this point, the analytic project began to turn away then from this purgative project of ruling out certain kinds of language altogether, Uh, language about metaphysical issues, the nature of the soul, the existence of God and so forth, turned away from that to, I might say, a kinder and gentler project, a descriptive project, focusing on the way that language is actually used, returning back again to not just a scientific language but to ordinary language. Uh, the way it's used every day. A key figure in this new mode of inquiry was Wittgenstein himself, who had been an early advocate of the perfect language school, and who was briefly, anyway, a kind of ex officio member of the Vienna circle. In later years, he argued any attempt to define terms in our language that ignore the context in which they are used is going to be doomed to failure. We cannot understand meanings of terms in a kind of isolated way one-on-one with what they refer to in the world, instead we're going to have to understand the way they function when people are actually using these words in ordinary language. He had some other distinctive uh, doctrines that we will come to when we turn to his thought in one of our lessons. Others in this movement, which eventually became known as ordinary language philosophy, although. I say that with a qualification that most of the people who were called ordinary language philosophers disliked the term. They would reject the term as applied to themselves. It, it had a kind of pejorative connotation, especially coming out of, as you can imagine, the people who wanted to create a la- the language of the sciences, a sort of strict, empirical, observational language. Turning back to ordinary language was just to admit defeat and to suppose that that ordinary workers in the street or whatever had some kind of insights that philosophers could gain something from. You might see the purgative project or the perfect language project or whatever as having a kind of elitist aspect to it, whereas the ordinary language school seemed to have a more populist caste. And so it was often held in utter contempt. And philosopher John Austin at Oxford University, who, um, who was one of those who took up this method in a kind of careful way, was often uh, trying to write apologies for it. He has uh, an article called A Plea for Excuses, and um, partly it's on the theme of when we excuse people for their behavior, but partly it's a plea for <laughs> looking, taking these things seriously, taking ordinary language seriously, looking at the many different ways that ordinary language is used. It's not always used to make assertions or to make claims or to observe uh, the actual empirical facts. But the same words can be used to be, make very different assertions. So Austin's idea was that if philosophers would just focus on relatively small clusters of related concepts, in the case of excuses, for instance, it was about when an action, when we would say an action was something we did on purpose or deliberately, when we would say, oh, I didn't mean to, it was an accident, and so forth. But when do we excuse our behavior? When do we take responsibility for it? When do we make other people take responsibility for their actions and so forth? This was the idea. That if we do that, if we just, it's kind of a modest proposal, right? We focus on smaller pieces of ordinary talk and you just prescind for now from the bigger philosophical issues as it were, like is there such a thing as free will or is every action of ours totally determined by prior natural causes? Is there a source of free actions that is not a material source that is the mind or the soul or the self that can't be captured in a purely materialist view of reality. Austen set these aside for the time being. Some people accuse the ordinary language movement of not caring about them at all, of only caring about what we say as though that was the end of the matter. I think Austen's idea was that philosophers have been too quick to rush on to the big questions without stopping, pausing to consider carefully enough the concepts as we ordinarily use them. His idea was that after all, you know, distinctions and assumptions that are present that are revealed to us in ordinary language have been worked out over centuries of dealing with other people and with the world, centuries of human interaction with others and that they're likely to be more illuminating, more revealing than the ideas we might come up with if we just sit down in an afternoon and try to imagine when we would excuse somebody for their behavior and so forth, what he calls kind of armchair philosophy that has been, he thinks, the dominant method in the past. Now, in the 1960s, there was a cultural shift as well as a shift in the intellectual community focusing a brighter light on the social factors that go into the search for knowledge even in the sciences and to the extra rational motives that influence the adoption of revolutionary new theories in the sciences. Thomas Kuhn, for instance, wrote a book in 1962 called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which had an enormous impact, not just in philosophy, in fact, maybe not initially in philosophy, but in many areas of inquiry. It began to seem to many that rationality here was going to be in the eye of the beholder, or that at least canons of rationality or canons of acceptable theories would shift over time in ways that were dramatic enough that it became difficult to say, well, we have one set of criteria and according to these criteria this theory is superior to this former theory. Within you know, normal science, as Kuhn called it, there was a kind of way of proceeding that was pretty ordinary and uncontroversial and so forth, it was cumulative, people working out different aspects or implications of the theory. But when it came to an entirely new development, something like relativity theory, versus uh, Newton's mechanics. Then the shift was so great, and the motivations for either sticking with the old one or transferring your loyalties and allegiances to the new one and so forth were so complicated. And the ways in which the new one was better were often, you couldn't articulate them very well within the old paradigm and so forth. So he called these shifts in paradigm, paradigm shifts, and that entered the language in the 60s all over the place, not just in philosophy, to describe these kind of, you know, gestalt changes or the way you look at it this way and you look at it that way and and you get a different view altogether and you can't almost not see it the way you did before. Some ordinary language philosophers, notably Wittgenstein himself, uh, resigned themselves to the view that there might be no language independent access to the world, and therefore no way to judge various ways of speaking as more accurate or closer to the truth about things. If the truth is to be known at all, it cannot be said, he thought. Perhaps he could still be shown somehow or accessed in an intuitive or a mystical way, but it cannot be said. Those impatient with Wittgenstein's mystical idea decided to live without the idea of truth altogether. So there are various ways of speaking or forms of life or conceptual schemes on this view and nothing more us view came to be known as anti-realism. What is true is simply what one's linguistic circle, one's interlocutors, group of people you're speaking with all the time, what they would permit you to say, what they would think was acceptable. Now this view goes far beyond, I think, a Kantian kind of agnosticism about things in themselves. It denies there is any such thing as the real world. It's not that there is the real world, it is how it is, it's just that we can't know for sure whether we're getting at it, which was, the problem in modern philosophy with Descartes and the evil demon could be uh, playing with your mind and so forth so that the way things are isn't the way you think they are. Uh, This goes beyond that. Anti-realism denies that there is any such thing as the real world or the correct view or nature in itself and so forth and so that's why the name anti-realism. Now there have been two ways of responding to uh, this drift of contemporary philosophy through ordinary language philosophy and then into the abyss of anti-realism. Two main alternatives to that, I think. One is a kind of neo-positivism, I'll call it, that is, it's a return to logical positivism in effect, touting new developments in the sciences of the mind, so that science again is going to resolve, is going to tell us what's really there, it's a realism about science, the sciences will tell us what's there. And we'll be able to reduce even our language about psychological states, thoughts, our feelings, and so forth to statements about brain events, neural events. Um, Now, reductionist attempts to account for these things, to account for mental states, have not been very successful so far. But there is the hope or the, the promissory note that eventually they'll figure this out. So you see here in neopositivism, as I'm calling it, the same presuppositions about what counts as genuine, tough-minded philosophy. This provides a kind of rationale for what the scientists are doing. And this is a bit baffling, I think, to those who witnessed the rise and fall of the earlier version of positivism. What's changed, they might ask. Um, Well, not much, it's just that these folks think it's gonna be possible to, in a way, they just sort of ignore some of the criticisms of the earlier version. Um, maybe they're a bit chastened now in the criterion of meaning. They have to admit that not everybody's going to accept this criterion of what counts as as acceptable in philosophy. And yet, even if everybody doesn't accept it, every reasonable person will or every respectable person will. There's almost a kind of, might say, uh, peer pressure now in some areas of philosophy to assume a kind of secular, naturalistic, worldview and operate within it um, and not really question it. The second kind of response I will call a kind of neo-realism of a more general sort, a type of common sense realism, returning in a way to the earliest analytic philosopher, the father of analysis in a way, G.E. Moore in England, returning to his commitment to common sense, but without his insistence on finding certitude uh, or universal starting points that could not be gainsaid. said he proposes then a kind of foundationless view of our knowledge that we begin with what's kind of obvious or evident to us, or what we know, and then we build on that. But this question about what will go into the foundations, what will count as basic in this belief structure, there's quite a bit of difference there. Some will still want to put in only those beliefs that are incorrigible for me, that I can't, if I say them, I can't be wrong about them. Uh, If I I say I have a headache or I'm in pain, I can't be wrong about that. I could be lying, but I have to know whether I'm in pain or not. Now, how do I know that what I perceive is representative of the world out there? Some will just say, well, we just start there. We're just going to assume that. So in a way, it's a recognition that you're not going to establish this kind of realism to all comers, but it might seem to be better than the alternatives. You could move to different kind of basic beliefs, beliefs that aren't incorrigible but that are Uh, obvious, they're evident to me, they're not based on any other beliefs for me, they seem obviously true, and so forth. That's going to allow in some idiosyncratic beliefs, perhaps, not everybody's going to buy into. It doesn't make any pretension to universality, but it does claim to arrive at truths about objective reality. Finally, you might try starting just with the beliefs that are evident to every normal adult including those of the past and those of other cultures and so forth, in a way that Thomas Reed, I think, wanted to do. Um, Of course, it's going to allow for some controversy about what counts as a belief that's universal, that everybody, every normal person would have, uh, might lack the kind of certitude that, that G. Moore was interested in. But perhaps that could be overcome by applying various tests and by further discussion and so on. Now, the question, I think, for us at the end of this course is in analytic philosophy, is whether metaphysical questions, the metaphysics itself, the study of what's real, can thrive again within this neorealism. Can we return, in a way, to the problems of philosophy? Questions certainly about right and wrong, ethics, you might say, has made a comeback, and so has some discussion of God and the soul, free will, questions about space and time, substances and properties, and so forth, all the traditional topics of metaphysics. But can this kind of new realism, be sustained against positivism and against anti-realism, its alternatives, as well as against the influence of postmodernism from the continent in the form of post-structuralist deconstruction philosophy. We'll have more to say about this at the end of our course, but we'll turn in our next lesson to the father of analysis, G.E. Moore. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.